Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ, and we're going to spend the next two episodes talking about the famous 51st Psalm. It is a heart-wrenching psalm, the fourth of seven confessional psalms found in the Book of Psalms. And there's a great deal to say about it, but before we do that, it is important for us to establish the background, what led to the writing of this psalm. As we begin, we'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 17. There we find, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Joab, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his lord's servants. But he did not go down to his house. Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city 
that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. After committing adultery with the beautiful woman Bathsheba, David tried to cover up his sin through verbal deceit and through the murder of her husband Uriah. In impenitence, he sought to keep his sin covered from God and man. A close examination of the entire situation reveals that he spent about three-quarters of a year in his denial and cover-up. Sin had hardened the heart of David and made him temporarily blind to his awful guilt. We will see that God sent Nathan the prophet to David to cause him to see himself as he really was and to motivate him to repent. We will see that David opens his heart to Nathan indictment and thoroughly cleanses his sin and confesses his sin to God. This psalm may very well be a portion of David's expression of his great sorrow for his sin. The primary request of the psalm is that David be restored to God. He had been away from him and his guilt-ridden heart had become cold and unfeeling. The 51st psalm is obviously an individual lament an impassioned cry for forgiveness by a man who had become estranged from the sweetest and most important of all fellowships. Let's go now to the psalm itself. 116 of the psalms have subtitles or superscriptions. 34 do not, and they are usually referred to as orphan psalms. In the Hebrew Bible, the subtitle is the first verse. Most English translations place the subtitle at the beginning of the psalm between the number of the psalm and the text so that it will be regarded by the readers as separate from the psalm itself. That makes them more like headings in our Bibles. These headings can give such things as the author, the historical occasion behind the psalm, maybe the melody or tune to which it was to be sung, the character or function of the psalm, and may even indicate the use of the psalm. Are they inspired? Some say they are, but I don't believe there is sufficient evidence that they were ever part of the original text. Personally, I think the best approach to take these subtitles is to view them as non-inspired but very old and reliable enough to be worthy of a Bible believer's consideration. They can inform us about the psalm, but the interpretation of the psalm does not depend upon what they say. Now let's read the 51st Psalm with its subtitle. For the choir director, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned, and have done what is evil in thy sight, so thou art justified when thou speakst, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. 
Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy way and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue shall sing joyfully of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite and broken heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. By thy favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and the whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. Now let's talk a little bit about this psalm and what it reveals to us. All agree that this psalm is unique from several viewpoints. Perhaps its unusual character is one reason why it is so easy for us to identify with. In this psalm, we see the darkest picture of sin. We would be awfully hard-pressed to find a more tragic circumstance of sin than the one we have here. Sins have been piled on top of each other until an ugly mountain of evil has been built. The towering pile is so big and foreboding that it tests the strength of God's grace. The sordid picture is made up of adultery, lying, murder, denial of guilt, and other sins. Half of the Ten Commandments have been consciously broken. I'll tell you right, right here is a place to ask, can God forgive sin? If God can forgive David, then he can forgive anyone. In this psalm, we see the far-reaching nature of salvation. How far down does salvation reach? Does it go all the way to the lowly list of sinners? Can it reach to the heart that has been hardened out of rebellion? Most of us believe that God can save the respectful sinner because we tend to categorize sins, like the white lie sinner and the lack of kindness sinner. But this psalm addresses the question of can he save the terribly wicked person? This psalm implies that he can and he does. We see in this psalm the height of God's grace. We admit that he forgives, but do we believe that God completely cleanses? Can he remove sin so that all traces of its guilt are taken away forever? Can he forgive sin so that it will never be brought up again? Can he make the sinner totally just in his sight? The answer to these questions according to this psalm is a resounding yes. We also see in this psalm the elements of true repentance. Salvation is presented as conditional. This psalm says when one acknowledges his sin, turns from sin and sorrow, accepts responsibility for his sin, and comes to God with the full intent of turning to his fellowship, God will run to meet him. We also see in the 51st psalm the decisiveness of the human will. The implication is you cannot say that a person cannot repent. We can only say that a person chooses not to repent. In light of the evidence here and throughout the Bible, P. 
people can turn from evil. In this psalm, we see the indescribable hope that is in God. Perhaps this psalm takes its place among the most popular passages of Scripture because of the hope that it gives. Its picture of God ranks with his picture in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The psalm brings before us almost in single file repentance, grace, complete forgiveness, full restoration from the depths of sin, and divine hope for the hopeless. How can we read this psalm and not rejoice in the goodness of God? From the dark prison of guilt that David had made for himself, he looked out through its bars and cried for the mercy of God. He needed restoration to God. Without God, he was lost, lonely, guilt-ridden, and had no purpose. But restoration to God meant forgiveness. It meant a clean heart, living once again within God's fellowship, within his joy, and a life with God's approval. As we start to bring this episode to a close, I want us to recognize that in this psalm we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, an absolute awful depiction of it for we see it as it really is. We see sin's detestable nature. Sin is missing the mark, the transgression of God's will, rebellion against God, and iniquity or corruption of what is right. It is thoroughly evil from top to bottom within all its parts of its existence. It stands opposed to all that is of God, his purposes, love, and benefits. Sin is hopelessly corrupt with no value whatsoever. He who touches it, let alone embraces it, takes on the contamination of its filth and the marks of its character. Partaking in sin is nothing less than bringing fire into our own bosom. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 27 and 28 says so clearly, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In this psalm, we see sin's destructive fingers in its vile soul. It leaves guilt, shame, and filthiness in its wake. It is falsehood, the antithesis of truth. Sin reduces man to a puppet in the hands of Satan and unrighteousness. It crushes the one who indulges in it. It will cover the soul with the worst sadness, the deepest grief. It fills the heart and conscience with pain that will not let up. It separates man from his God, from his Savior, from the Holy Spirit. After sin has brought indescribable pain, it hardens or numbs the conscience. It removes joy from the soul, light from the eyes, and peace from the heart. It makes bright minds dull, heavy, and useless. Sin blinds the understanding and hardens the heart to all that is wholesome, righteous, good, and divine. It embarrasses and humiliates. Sin takes the beautiful and prostitutes it for the unholy purposes of the devil. In this psalm, we also see sin as it generates. It enslaves and multiplies, adding one sin to another until a person is engulfed by it. Sin begins as a drop of water but crackly mushrooms into an overwhelming ocean. It springs up in any kind of soil and grows rapidly taking charge and reigning as king. It stains, scars, and defaces whatever it touches. Am I getting my point across? 
we can also see sin's dominating strength. Sin cannot be cured by any finite or human power. No psychologist, sociologist, or anthropologist can remove its stain or its guilt. It remains to haunt, hurt, control, and consume all of one's energies until, through a person's true contrition and surrender to God, it is absolved, forgiven, and cleansed by the grace of God through the blood of the Lamb. Thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ from the guilt, grip, and grave of sin. Can every one of us say with Paul from Romans 7 verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Every clear thinking person needs to take hold of the gospel. This is not a game. It is a matter of eternity. By obeying the gospel, we can sing with Paul from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have more to say about the 51st Psalm in the next episode, but thank you for listening.